0: Good morning, church. My name is Ronnie Rents, and I'm a member here at CLC. And uh, it is so I'm so blessed to be a part of this faith family. And it's an honor to have this opportunity to bring the word of God for you today. This morning, we will be considering the topic of war. In our American context, fighting in a war, nations going to battle with each other, This can be something that seems distant from us. Those those of us that have never served our country during war times probably see war depicted primarily in headlines and news, in history books, movies, and in video games. We are so blessed to be distant from war that our leisure activities are fantasized depictions of war. I mean no offense to the members here who boot up their consoles and answer the call of duty. Even though many Americans have lived apart from the tragedies and violence of war, we sure do use this word war a lot. The war on drugs, social media wars, the mommy wars, the war on Christmas, the war on men, the war on women, the war on children, the war on religion, the war on science, information wars, cake wars, there is a war going on for everything, it seems. If you go to Google and type in the words, word for war, I'm sorry, war for fill in the blank, you will probably find a book published on the subject. Last year in our charged political climate, a survey was conducted that found more than 60% of Americans said that they believe that this nation is on the verge of civil war. And 52% of them were already preparing for such a catastrophe. Living in a fallen, sinful world leads us to war, to conflict, to division. In our fallen state, we focus far more on what separates us than what we have in common and in what unites us. Today, There are a lot of proverbial wars to fight, a lot of banners to take up, a lot of charges and causes to take up. But some of these skirmishes, they have more merit than others. But I hope to show you this morning as soldiers of Christ that there is one war worth fighting that is above all other wars. We are to wage the war of love, fighting to defend gospel truth in our hearts and in our churches. Let's pray. Almighty and eternal God, help us this morning to see where our ultimate affection should lie. Help us to see the purpose that we have been called to in you. I pray that through your words that hearts would be convicted and hearts would overflow with your grace. I pray that your word would impact our entire identity. And that we would grow in our affection for you. Please use this weak vessel for your glory. In your precious name we pray. Amen. In the passage we will be looking at today, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 18 through 20, we see a restatement of the charge that Paul had given to Timothy earlier in verses 3 through 7 a charge against false teachers and to protect the gospel truth from those that would aim to corrupt it at the church in Ephesus. This passage serves as the bookend of chapter one, coming full circle, a closing summary of what Timothy is called to live out in his ministry. These are marching orders from Paul to Timothy to wage war for the gospel truth. And the aim of this charge is rooted in love. This war to be waged was for Timothy and Paul and the Ephesian church then. And it is also a charge for any true Christian to follow today, to take up arms in battle. I'm not trying to invoke a holy war or a crusade or anything. But today we will see how Christians are to wage a war for the truth and love. In our two points for today's sermons, we'll see that we are to wage this war of love first in our own hearts and second, in our churches. Let's first look at waging the war of love in our own hearts. Read along with me in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to proclaim the truth, to lead God's people, and to stand against false teaching and the enemies of the Ephesian church. In this charge, Paul uses military language. He's conveying a military command. There's an urgency. A direct order is being handed down from Timothy, a faithful gospel soldier, from Paul, his commanding officer. He entrusts Timothy with this charge. And if you look back with me in verse 5 of 1 Timothy, we are able to clearly see the aim and motive of this charge. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of this charge is love. And with this aim in mind, Timothy is to wage the good warfare. Paul knew that the Christian life is a battle. And he is writing this letter with the hope to prepare Timothy for the battles to come. Paul addresses Timothy as his child. This is a term of endearment, his spiritual son who likely came to salvation under Paul's ministry, who he loves as his own son and he trusts to carry on his mission in his absence. Timothy is to operate in accordance with the previous prophecies that have been made about him. These prophecies were likely referring to Timothy's calling into the ministry, into the service of God. God had used others in the church to affirm the calling and gifting on Timothy's life. The words previously made in verse 18 could also be translated as leading the way to. These prophecies that were affirming his call to ministry were leading the way to this very moment in which he would stand for truth despite opposition. They served as an anchor point in his life to look back upon and to know that God had spoken through others and had supernaturally equipped him for this task. Later, we see this expounded upon in 1 Timothy 4.14, which says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy is told these things. And in his weakness, in his doubts, in his struggles, Timothy might have thought back to when saints had laid hands on him, prayed for him, invested in him, people that knew him and loved him and affirmed him for ministry. These thoughts would have strengthened him. These prophecies were a testament to God's faithfulness in Timothy's life. Timothy is not a self-appointed leader operating on his own terms and in his own strength. He has been called out by God and affirmed by God's people to fight the good fight for gospel truth. Timothy is strengthened by the affirmation of the church. It is an awesome thing, the love and devotion of a family of faith. Church family, never discount the role you play in God's plan for building up the church. And for those who would aspire to lead in ministry one day, this example should serve as a word of caution for us to remember that God has chosen the church to affirm a calling to ministry. May none of us ever think that we can do this on our own or despise God's means and God's timing. And with these prophecies in mind, You see that Timothy is then told that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. Timothy was to deal with these false teachers who were causing disruption in the church. And while we don't know exactly what these teachers' false beliefs were, we know they had strayed from sound doctrine and devoted themselves to myths, uh, endless genealogies, and speculations. Most likely mixing Jewish tradition, man made practices, and mythologies, all with with their Christian belief, a a buffet of beliefs. If these false teachers were in the fitness industry, it would be akin to, to health gurus getting bored with a simple, basic, and healthy diet and exercise and opting for the new supplement or fad, the far more exciting options. With this one simple trick, you can shed 30 pounds. With this new, unique teaching, you can really understand the true meaning of the Torah. Swerving from the healthy diet of truth and leading others astray. This was contrary to true teaching that resulted in love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. As I prepared for this sermon, I I was taken aback at how unique and out of place it seems that Paul instructed Timothy to wage the good warfare. And yet, the, that aim of waging this war is rooted in love. Wage war in love. That's just not how these terms are used in most contexts. They seem like two ends of the spectrum. I felt this same tension when I came across 1 Corinthians 16 13. I remember reading it. It says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. You got this awesome charge to men that could be on a weightlifting t-shirt to stand firm, be strong, act like men. And then the last verse sums it up. It's the filter by which all the other actions must be put through. Let all that you do be done in love. Without love, there is no strength. Without love, true strength is absent. In my mind, there was this separation between strength and love. And I think that this confusion can be there because many times our modern definition of love is doing what makes others feel good. Love means total acceptance and affirmation. But the love depicted in the Bible is a love that stretches far past our cultural feelings of today. We see the essence of love depicted in 1 Corinthians 13. One of the most beautiful pictures of love that we have. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. There is an essential relationship between truth and love. True love will always be in line with the truth even when it is difficult, even if it is hard. Love is selfless and enduring and is rooted in the very character of God because we know that God is love. This love is not cheap and easy flowery sentiment It is enduring and sacrificial. It will always exemplify and uphold truth. As we think about how we wage the war of love in our hearts, I have two points of application for us to consider. The first is that Christians should possess a wartime mentality. If we are not careful, we can become convinced that there isn't really a spiritual war to be waged. We can be lulled to sleep and grow to believe that there isn't a struggle for truth in our day, that we don't need to live with gospel intentionality, that there isn't a literal hell that many are going to apart from Christ, that preserving truth isn't really a big deal and that everyone can have their own piece of truth, that we can go about in the busy day-to-day of our lives with the biggest struggle being the material, physical things in front of us. In Ephesians 6, we see our true enemy is not just other people, but spiritual forces of evil. Satan may work through people, but people are not our ultimate opposition in this life. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of Of evil in the heavenly places. Timothy was called to an unceasing spiritual warfare, a fight that demands equipped, trained, and devoted soldiers. Do we have this mindset? Do our spiritual lives and pursuits have more in common with the beaches of Normandy during D Day or the beaches of St. Pete during summer? We, are too, are to protect the truth, fighting this war of love. As Christians, we are called to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We should train as an athlete to run in such a way as to win the prize. Every Christian here is called to die to themselves and to take up their cross living sacrificially in this world. The language of these pursuits is anything but casual. Brothers and sisters, we should strive to live this life for the glory of God as much as we can. To take the grace that we have been given and to use it to the fullest. I'm simultaneously helped and torn to shreds uh, from this quote from a well-known pastor, R.C. Sproul. He says, here then is the real problem of our negligence. We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it is dull and boring, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy. There should be a diligence about us, an urgency about our lives. Ephesians 5 implores us to look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of our time, for the days are evil. Because the days are evil. Time is short. Do you have a wartime mentality about the things of God? Further along, we see that Timothy possessed two essential tools that he was to utilize in this war. The faith, meaning sound doctrine, what we believe as Christians, and, the, and a good conscience. And the term good here is not meant to describe the conscience as a moral designation, like it's a good or evil conscience, but instead meaning a healthy, working conscience a conscience that is has the ability to know truth from a lie, good from evil. The conscience that is functioning correctly. The second point of application I want us to consider is our faith and our conscience as we wage this war for the truth and love. Holding to our faith and conscience prepares us. It keeps us fit in this battle. Our faith, meaning our doctrine, our theology, the promises of God, they are a beautiful thing to be studied daily, to be meditated on, to be treasured, to be protected, to share with others. The greatest thing about us is what we believe about God. Because from that belief comes forth a right understanding of who we are and who God is. And from those beliefs become our conviction, our actions the way we live in this world, we should take every opportunity to sit under the teaching of the word of God, to be molded by the word of God. We should know what we believe, discerning truth from false doctrine and not taking the truth for granted. Knowing and taking hold of our faith allows us to navigate through this life, avoiding paths of destruction and clinging to the path of truth. In the Bible, the conscience is given a prominent place. It is very important. In 2 Timothy, Paul said he had served God with a clear conscience. In 1 Timothy, church leaders must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. God gave humanity a conscience. And in the book of Romans tells us that God has written his law on man's heart so that we can know the standard of right and wrong. When we violate our conscience, it produces guilt and shame, functioning like a defense system that would, against anything that would threaten to harm or violate our soul. It has been said that if our faith is a precious liquid of truth, then a good conscience is a clean, pure glass that contains it. Dirty conscience pollutes and distorts our faith. We see a destruction of the conscience in First Timothy four two. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. A seared conscience is a desensitized conscience. It is cauterized. Its nerves have lost the ability to feel, and it has been made into useless lumps of scar tissue. The more we ignore our conscience, the more we sin, the more we pronounce that our ways is right over God's, our conscience loses its reliability and no longer serves as a right guide. In contrast, when we walk with a clear conscience, it is a wonderful, life-giving thing. There is a freedom that comes from a clear conscience. It is the rudder of the ship that guides us through murky waters and prevents us from getting shipwrecked. Where is your faith and conscience at today? Can they be trusted? Has your conscience been marred by sinful desire from indulging in the world? Or is it rightly operating and allowing you to follow after good? Is your standard of measure the word of God, or is it what our ever-changing culture deems as acceptable? Pay careful attention to your faith and conscience. Without them, Paul knew that Timothy would be lost, and so will we. I want to take a moment to speak to my non-Christian friends here today. You may be wondering, dude, why are y'all so serious about this? You were talking about waging war and proclaiming the Bible as objective truth. These are old ways of thinking. When Oprah sat down to interview Meghan and Harry, who had left the royal family, she asked them, how do you feel about the palace hearing you speak your truth today? As our nation becomes more secular, this is the spirit of our postmodern age. There's no longer capital T truth. We each have our own truths. We are the arbiters of truth. You do you. Instead of being made in the image of God, we make God up in our image, or we deny his existence and authority in our lives altogether. In all of us, there is a desire and allure of this self-autonomous life that we are not accountable to anything or anyone unless we choose to be. This seems right. But in the Proverbs, we see that there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. In our catechism for our children, we we ask them questions and they give answers. And it's this way of memorizing and instilling knowledge in their little minds. So the first question we ask them is, what is our only hope in life and death? And they answer that we are not our own but we belong to God. No one on this earth is their own person. And if you belong to God, if you are accountable to your creator, then that means your life's purpose is totally transformed. The reason we take this so seriously as Christians is that we don't want people to be deceived. We want truth and life for everyone. If you are not a Christian and you think these old ways keep us from being enlightened, I would plead with you that if you are not in Christ, then you do not truly know who you are. As Christians, our primary aim is not to follow a rigid adherence to archaic rules. It is to know and love and serve the God who created all things, including you and me so that we might live for him in his glory. To know who you are in Christ is to know your purpose. To live for God is life. Jesus said that his purpose for coming into this world is so that we may have life and have it abundantly. Non-Christian friends, you may see Christians waging this war of love imperfectly. Some who even claim his name, but without the love of Christ in their hearts. They may be waging a war not of love, but of legalism or license or even death. We wage this war imperfectly on earth, but our strength is that we know and trust the one who fought it perfectly. Jesus spent his entire life waging this war of love, sent to earth, fully man and fully God, living a perfect, sinless life that we could never live steeped in truth and sharing the love of God with others, not just preaching truth but claiming to be truth himself. There is no greater depiction of waging the war of love than that of Christ on the cross. Jesus gave his life, was tortured and mocked so that we would be redeemed from our sin. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. In his pursuit of love, he would give up his life. Jesus laid his life down even for his enemies. Jesus took on the sins of the world, a cost far greater than the honorable self-sacrificing soldier who would jump on the grenade to save his fellow troops, sacrificing his life. And in the most miraculous event in world history, Christ rose again from the grave, proving that death and sin had no claim on him. And as Christians, we put our hope not in our works, not in our ability, but in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We are forgiven of all the debt of our sins and adopted as sons and daughters of God, clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. We are forever changed, growing daily in pursuit of Jesus and waging the war of love that he has called us to. Not because of what we do, but because of what he did. And for any that would turn from their sin and turn to faith in Christ, he gives this ultimate redemption. You can know who you are today in Christ. You can be freed from the bondage of sin. Talk to any of us here. We would love to share the good news of Jesus who came to save sinners like you and me. To my brothers and sisters in Christ here today, you may hear this charge to wage war and feel inadequate. You may feel so far from living the life that you want to live, that you were meant to live. Your conscience may be dulled and your faith may be lacking. Maybe you've spent your time distracted by other lesser wars. The gospel is described not as a burdensome path, but as a treasure in a field that we would give up everything to acquire. Christian, in some sense, it may be more appropriate to say that we wage the battle of love because the war has already been won. Christ has secured it, and you get to walk in victory. This should not grow an apathy in us to live leisurely in our newfound freedom, but instead is an honor and privilege to live our life in obedience to our king. We don't need to wage a war of receiving love or acquiring things because we've already been given love. Everything we need in Christ because he waged war for us. I want to remind you that your ultimate value, our ultimate value comes from who Christ says we are. Galatians 2.20 says that I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Cling to these gospel truths. We should be enamored with all that we have received in Christ. Working in student affairs, Sometimes I will speak with students about their major and future career choices, and they'll become preoccupied with many things during this discussion. Uh, They're they're concerned about what their parents want them to do. They're concerned about avoiding hard classes or how much money they will make. And something a a clarifying question I'll sometimes ask is to kind of get to the root of what they would really like to pursue. Is what would you do if you knew that you could not fail? In a similar way, as long as we are pursuing Christ, we cannot fail. We are so loved and forgiven that we can step out into this world with the assurance of the one who made all things. We can have a wartime mentality, charging ahead and living boldly to advance the gospel, not living in self-condemnation because we are covered in grace. Living in obedience to God will renew our weak faith in our dulled consciences, as we are conformed into the image of Jesus. If he has started a work in you and you are a new creation in him, he will bring his work to completion. This brings us to our second point. Waging the war of love in our churches. Read along with me, starting in the second half of verse 19. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul serves as a faithful example, instructing Timothy on how to deal with these people who have turned from the truth. Some had rejected their conscience, they had cast aside the rudder of their ship, and as a result, they had made a shipwreck of their faith. This shipwreck of faith is describing someone who has turned from the truth and has believed a different gospel contrary to the gospel of Christ. These were leaders in the church much like Timothy, but they were deceived, likely apostates, never having a genuine conversion, never possessing a true heart change and deserting the faith that they held. Paul mentions two of these leaders by name, Hymenius and Alexander. These men would have been known to Timothy, likely fellow teachers or pastors. So what does it mean to be handed over to Satan? Four times in the Bible, we see this term, handed over to Satan, uniquely used to describe God giving permission to Satan to intervene in the life of believers. We see this in the life of Job. We see it in the life of Peter, Jesus, and Paul. Satan had been given permission from God to attack, tempt and to test these four. But this being handed over to Satan is something entirely different. It is referring to the enacting of church discipline. If the church is God's domain and the world is Satan's domain, although we know that every domain is really God's, right? This is the act of removing Hymenaeus and Alexander From the protection and grace of the church in treating them as unbelievers as a result of their sin. When I first encountered the concept of church discipline, I kind of just saw it as kicking people out of the church. And I, I questioned it. I was like, "Why isn't the church a place for everyone? But as I began to understand and I grew in my faith, I was able to see the importance of church discipline and why it matters. If we look throughout the world, there are standards by which organizations operate. Pretty much on a weekly basis, we see people removed from sports teams to TV shows or companies for misconduct uh, or doing something that, that doesn't align with the organization's values. The same is true and also very different within the church. If worldly organizations have standards to uphold, how much more than we, the church, should the church who represents Christ? We are called to be holy as he is holy. Now, that doesn't mean we are perfect in and of ourselves or that we never sin. But when we are in open, unrepentant sin, we can no longer rightly identify with God's church. Faithful pastors and members of the church would then go on to these unrepentant members and plead with them, to call to to them to turn from their sin and to come back to Christ and to trust in Christ. And if they chose to remain in their sin, then they can no longer live in line with the faith that they have professed. A healthy church will seek to remove them from the church body. And this is for the protection of the church This is for the gospel witness of the church in the onlooking world. And it is ultimately for the good of the one being removed. Because unlike organizations in the world, the goal of the church in its enacting church discipline is completely different. In the church, the goal of their removal is ultimately their redemption. They are not removed and booted out with the hopes that we will never see them again. But in removing them, we are hopeful that being absent from the grace of God's body in the church allows them to see the error of their ways, repent, and be reconciled to Christ and the church. Even in this situation here presented in 1 Timothy, Timothy, we see the hope for Hymenaeus and Alexander is that they would learn not to blaspheme, which is to speak lies concerning the things of God. The hope is that they would learn not to do this and come back and be reconciled to the church. And this practice is not something taken lightly. It is a measure of last resort in the life of the church, always with the goal of reconciliation. As members of covenant life, we all have a part to play in waging this war of love and in protecting and safeguarding the truth and the church. As we think about this practically, I want to ask several questions in order to help us think through the ways in which we contribute to the care of God's church. This morning, would you consider yourself a protector of the gospel? Would that be in your Twitter bio, protector of the gospel? If that answer is no for you, I would ask you to reconsider your stance and reevaluate the role that you have in this church family. If you are a member of CLC, you are a part of the body of Christ. We each have a ministry to protect the church. We serve as lighthouses for each other, shining and preventing each other from slamming into the rocks of sin and heresy. Are you an active part of members' meetings? Are you engaging and actively contributing to the direction of our church? Getting to know others and taking seriously the call as church members to protect the church as members are voted in and out of the body? With your community group, are you leaning in, sharing truth, having honest and maybe even hard conversations so that others might not stray? Are you being honest and open with your struggles? When you are confronted in love, Do you think that the other brother or sister is seeking to wage the war of love for your good and for the good of the church? Or do you focus more on your hurt and withdraw from them? In humility, we should aim to question ourselves first and be thankful to be a part of the kind of church where members would speak into our lives, even when they do it imperfectly. There have been times at CLC where I've wanted more friendships. There have been times where I've been convicted by my lack of depth in relationships. It is hard to wage the war of love for people that you don't really know. I would encourage you to grow in your depth of relationship, to be intentional about gauging in gospel community every single week. It can be easy to, to dismiss others when you don't feel responsibility for them. As a part of this family of faith, I hope you are able to look around this room and feel responsibility for every person who is a part of this church. That we would pray for each other, that we would build each other up in truth. These men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, were most likely elders of their church they led people away from Christ. We should be so grateful for elders who are faithful to protect the flock and to uphold the name of Christ when they enact church discipline. We are blessed to have elders that pray for us, disciple us, and want to see us grow in our faith. Do you see the grace provided to us that we are under the protection of God and in the care of God's church? Do you see that grace this morning? Can you imagine the severity of living life outside of the grace provided in this room to be handed over to the world, handed over to Satan? Praise God that we are not our own and that we belong to him and to his people. As Christians, we are to wage the war of love in our own hearts and within the church Protecting the gospel at all costs for ourselves and for each other and for the glory of God. Sometimes we complicate it and make it more complex than it seems. In all that we do, we should pursue a simple and pure devotion to Christ. There is no greater calling than to wage the war of love. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live out this life that you have called us to in the power of your spirit. Grow us closer together as a church family in such a way that the world would see that something is different about these people. They have true love that this world just does not have. Help us to rejoice and take hold of the victory that we already have in you. All praise be to your glorious name. Amen.